Hey, what a welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball, where um, this is part two of our talk with Rex Walters. Rex, of course, was a star guard at Northwestern. Then he transferred to Kansas. We covered all this in part one. If you missed it, it's great, man. I mean, his career is fascinating. By the way, I think next All Ball, we'll probably do um, some reaction to college basketball as of Christmas. And, of course, the Christmas Day NBA games, if they go off with all the craziness that that's taking place. In the meantime, let's dig back in with Rex Walters. Okay. So when we last caught up with him, um, he'd taken us through his playing career, which of course spanned not just high school and two colleges, but also the NBA as a draft pick. And then he makes the league and he bounces around. And then, then what, how do you, how do you get into coaching and how do you go from playing to coaching to being a head coach at such a young age at Florida Atlantic and then why take the San Francisco job? And you wait to hear he shares with us what it's like to get fired, what he's done since and how he watches basketball now and what's left for his basketball career. He's only 51 years old. All right. So let's dig back in. By the way, if you like some of the stuff that we do here, great way to listen is on a daily basis. The Doug Gottlieb Show airs from 3 to 6 Eastern or 12 to 3 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio, the iHeartRadio app, Sirius XM 217, 203. That's Dan Patrick's channel. It's not the Fox Sports channel, just so you know. Um, a reminder to download, subscribe, rate, write a review. I'll write a nice review. I got some mean reviews. Maybe we'll do a mean review um, pod. That'd be fun. We could do that one time. Anyway, let's dig back in. Here's Rex Walters, part two. like playing in Spain. Yeah. So yeah, I go to Spain. I go there about a month after I was released by the heat. It was, it was bad for me. I, I didn't like it. I went to Leon, Spain. It was really weird. Like, so you go to practice in the morning, you practice, you know, nine o'clock, you go for like three hours and you'll do a lot of shooting. You do a lot of skill work. You understand why international basketball is as good as it is. Because and you have younger players like high school kids that are working out with NBA, you know, not NBA, but professional players. Your coaches are coaching you. So you practice for two and a half, three hours, a lot of shooting, a lot of ball handling, a lot of skill work. And then you'd have, you know, from 12 to about five, they have this thing called siesta. Everything's closed down. So you're coming out of practice. You know how it is, Doug. You come out of practice, you want to get some food. You want to relax, maybe go then go back to your apartment, take a nap, whatever. Like I couldn't find a place to eat. And the other thing is I didn't know I didn't speak Spanish. So you're basically eating bad food. You like McDonald's. You're going to McDonald's way too much. They had a TGIF Fridays, you know, in Grand Canary when I played there. And so but but basically everything shut down for like three hours. Nobody's working. Nobody's out there. And then you go back to practice at night. You go from like five to like seven, seven thirty. And that's more up and down. You're going to play. You're going to play half court. You're going to work on defense. And then the day's over with, and then it all starts over again. And then when you're playing in Spain and you're playing on a, you know, not necessarily a good team, like we were a team that only played one game a week. And so you play your one game, you win the game. And like, it's like NFL football. Everybody loves you. You know, the things that you can't read it in the paper, but they got great pictures of you smiling. But if you lose, you got to deal with, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all the way to Saturday, where you know people are talking about you, killing you, and you don't even know what they're saying to you because they don't speak your language. And I was a little paranoid. Uh, I'm American. I'm, I'm in Spain. I'm trying to, and I played well. I mean, it's not like I didn't play well, but I remember one time walking in the locker room and and kind of the the guy that manages the team had my passport, and I'm like, I cussed the dude out. I'm like, don't you ever. Touch, go into my bag, grab my passport. Cause you hear stories like, Hey, they're going to steal your passport. You can never leave, you know? So I'm cursing this dude out. And I'm just thinking to myself, this dude understands me now. He didn't understand me before when I was speaking English, but now all of a sudden he can understand what I'm saying. And I'm, you know, MF in the dude. So that was, it was hard. You know, it was hard for me. My wife, we had, let me see. The first time around we had, we had an apartment. We had two kids. My wife was pregnant. At the time, 
it was a, that was a hard experience for me. And we weren't good. We were trying not to get relegated. So there's a lot of pressure. It's not like the NBA. You don't go to the G League if your team's in the bottom two in your league. In this league, you go down a league and it affects your sponsorships. It affects your money in terms of that organization. You don't want to be in the bottom two and get relegated to the second division. So there's a lot of pressure. I think we probably saw with Ted Lasso with soccer. It's the same way. Like you don't want to go down a level and everyone is talking, especially with the Americans, if you're a guy that's that's counted on. So that was a big adjustment for me the first time. I ended up tearing my meniscus uh, when I was over there. And I played about three games, and then I went back again after playing in the ABA for Kevin Pritchard. I went back again and played about 10 games and then tore my calf it was it was a nightmare. It wasn't a great experience for me playing. In yeah, now 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 the body's starting to fail you, right? Now it's like yeah. things are. So how old are you at this time? Uh, 30, 29, 30. I mean, that, you get to the point where your 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 warm up is about like thirty to forty five minutes, right? Your workouts about an hour, hour fifteen, and then you go on another 30, 45 minutes afterwards, like. You're spending three hours to get an hour of work in. You know what I'm saying? Because you got, I got torn meniscus, torn my calf, had degenerative disc disease at like 30, 31, and you start to see the writings on the wall. Um, in your mind, are you thinking, I want to coach? In your mind, you're thinking, I, I want to keep doing this, you know, and just keep the body together? Like, what, what's going on in your mind? So, we moved to Kansas City. I played in two different camps. I played, I went to Toronto to play in one of those like free agent workout camps. And then I went to Denver and played summer league with them um, and played well, like I played well. My, my last game, it's funny. We're playing against, and again, we talk about the confidence and all that stuff. I'm playing against Tony Parker in one of my last games in summer, in summer league with the, with the nuggets. And I'm just going at Tony, Tony's going at me, but I'm like, I'm not letting some dude from France kick my butt. So I'm talking to him, yapping at him and they double team me. And I end up playing like 12, 14 minutes. And so I get cut my last game of summer league, but that's again, when that, when that aggressive, you know, confident dude hurts himself. But after that, I talked to Mark, we're getting ready to training camp. And I say to Mark, like, Hey, what, what do we got? We got anything. I said, I just want a, a make good deal. If I can get a make good, cause I don't want to go back to Spain. We talked about getting hurt twice when I'm in Spain. Can I get a make good? I, I played well in Toronto. I played well in Denver. What's up? He's like, Rex, no one's going to sign you. You're, you'd be an eight year uh, veteran minimum, which is a lot more than a, than a younger player. So at that point, I just never forget this. I, I just, I'm on the phone. My wife's watching because she loves basketball. And I said, Hey, I'm done then I'm going to retire. And, you know, honestly, to be honest with you, Doug, for about a month, I was like, all right, I'm going to play golf every day. I lived on a golf course. I'm going to play about 36 holes a day. And by the time I get 50, I'm going to play in the senior league, which I had no chance of doing, but I got, (laughs) what's that? You want to play in the senior tour? Yeah, I want to play in the PGA Senior Tour uh, at fifty. With it, with a degenerative disc in your back, how are you going to do that? Oh, I'm going to. I was still in shape. Now I still do my crunches. Like swinging a golf club is different than having to, you know, make a cut, do a crossover, change directions. Like I'm going to play golf. Like I probably wouldn't have made it. And you're right, the back probably would have caught up with me later on. But but so anyway, I did that for about a month. My, my wife's like, something's got to stop. This is ridiculous. You got to get a job. And so I, I called around, called all the people I know, Roy Williams, Pat Riley, Stan Van Gundy, Mark Turgeon. Mark Turgeon helped me get a, a um, what is it? A volunteer assistant job at Emporia State University working for a guy named, you may know the name, uh, David Moe. David uh-huh. Moe, his father's Doug Moe, was a great uh-huh. NBA coach. And I was driving two and a half hours every day to be a volunteer assistant. Jeff Linder, who's now at Wyoming, sure. uh, was was his assistant. And I would I was there for about three months. And then um, I find out about Valpo's situation. You know, Scott Drew goes to Baylor. They had the Patrick Dennehy situation. Scott Drew goes down there. I call Bryce and say, hey, what's going on? What, what's your father going to do? And what's Scott going to do if he has any openings on his staff? And Scott called me and said, would you like to be a graduate manager? We only got eight guys on scholarship. I know you can still play a little bit. 
would you like just to come? You're allowed to play if you're a graduate manager. And I said, well, Scott, I, I could probably make more if I went back overseas. I don't really want to do that. I want to coach. And then right after I said that to Scott, about two days later, Homer Drew called me and said, would you like to interview for the job here at Valpo? And that's how I got my foot in the door into coaching. So you get to go to Valpo, Indiana, which is um, – I, I don't know what, what people's perception of it is like for me, it's like one of those towns. It's like a truck stop. It feels like it's got like Walmart, it's got like everything. It's just on the way to, to South Bend, right from Chicago. Um, yeah. Like you, you'd come down a little bit off the NBA high, you're playing overseas and, and doing the minor league thing in the ABA, but you show up at Valpo and what's your first memories? Homer Drew, just how you're right. There's two exits. Basically, there's two exits for Valpo. When you're on your little freeway that you got one exit, you got a second exit, and then you're, you're heading to South Bend. So you're, you are right about that. Um, it was a Lutheran University. It was they really loved their basketball. Indiana basketball is very important. They would they would get good crowds for the games. Homer Drew was like super duper positive, like didn't really raise his voice, didn't want to get on guys, which was different for me because I played for Roy Williams. I played for Pat Riley, played in the NBA. So that was different. The players were pretty good. Uh, I learned a lot. Like, you know, when you, when you play for a long time and then all of a sudden you coach, you think you got it all figured out. You don't. There's a lot of things you got to learn how to deal with players, how to deal with levels, a little bit different level player than, than, you know, maybe what I've been around, but just really good man, like great heart. You can see why Scott and Bryce have had success because they probably relate more to the modern day player than a lot of guys do. They're very positive people. Um, he gave me my first shot. I worked there for two years. We went to the NCAA tournament my first year. We won the conference tournament, played Gonzaga. Uh, my second year, we weren't quite as good. And then Matt Doherty gets the FAU job. So Matt gets it. Obviously, that's part of the – you played for him at Kansas. He was assistant at Kansas. You know, he's all part of that family tree. He gets the job and immediately called you. Did you call him? Did you call Coach Williams? How did it work? So first, I was down in Florida visiting my in-laws, and I found out about the FAU opening. I just drove to FAU, and I just sat in front of the athletic director's door and said, hey, I want to interview for this job. I've been at Valpo the last two years. And, he, and Craig Angelos was the AD at the time. He was very nice. You know, he said, well, you know, ask me questions, spend some time with me. But it, it, that wasn't going to happen. I had two years experience. And I, when I go back to Valpo, Matt calls me and says, hey, do you have a legit chance at it? Because if you do, I don't want to get involved. And I said, I have no shot at this job. Like the guy just did a courtesy thing. I showed up unannounced. He said, well, if I, if I got involved, would you come with me? And I was on my treadmill. I'm like, yeah, if you get it, like I'd love to do it. So that's really how it happened. I didn't call Coach Williams. Coach Williams knew nothing about it. Didn't call any of my NBA people. It was really, you know, Matt reaching out to me. We had had discussions. We had kept in touch. Obviously, when you lose a job at North Carolina, like you reach out to the people you love and care about. Like he had two of the best jobs you can get, Notre Dame and North Carolina. Like who gets jobs like that? And to not to have good success at Notre Dame, to go to North Carolina, have some good success and then get fired. Uh, you know, you reach out. You always, I think I always reach out to people when they're going through tough times. Any coach or player that I have any kind of relationship, I'm going to reach out. So basically he offered me the job. Um, I was making like 41 grand to live in Boca Raton. The, we had a hurricane go through the place that year. We ended up having a winning season when I think 15 and 13 learned a lot. Like Matt's a really detailed guy with recruiting, with how he wants to play. And I think he was also trying to find himself. He didn't want to run the Carolina, Kansas stuff. He wanted to break away from that. But uh, I learned an awful lot in just one year working for him. And then he got the SMU job. Uh, so then what'd you do? So Matt gave me really good advice. He says, Hey, um, stay, stay in Boca and wear the job. Like when people see you that you want them to envision this guy could be a head coach, this guy. And if you don't get it, you're going to come with me to SMU. Like it's a pretty good situation. He's like, so just stay there, deal with it. They're going to hear, hear a lot of names. You're going to hear a lot of people. They're supposed to get the job. Just stay there, work, work with the players 
you know, and, and present an image that you could be a head coach. And that's exactly what I did. You know, you hear all kinds of names like Stan Van Gundy is interested. He had just been let go of the Miami Heat. So I called Stan. I was like, are you really interested? And he's like, are you crazy? You think I would want to coach at Florida Atlantic? There's no way in the world. Like, like I just got done coaching Miami Heat. Like they're just using my name to try to bump up the job. Uh, he's like, I have no interest in being a college coach. So I, I just, I hung around, I hung around and about three weeks into it, Craig Angelos and the president called me in the office. They asked me if I wanted the job, uh, what I would do if I got the job, how, how I would lay this thing out. And I really just said, hey, I want to continue what Matt started. You know, we're going to run a lot of the same stuff. We're going to play the same way. We're going to I want a lot. I believed in the players he's recruiting. I helped recruit them and I got the opportunity. I was there for two years. Uh, I, I had an interview at, at, at one place that I was going to take. I didn't at the end of the day. And then I, I remember this and we had decent teams, but as a young coach, and I, I still haven't figured this one out. Like I had, I had some good players, but we had all kinds of disciplinary issues. And so guys not going to class, this, that, and the other, and probably hurt myself because my best player, you know, suspended him 10 games, spent another player, you know, five to 10 games. And we ended up having eight going 18, 15, my first year, I think we were two or three games under 500 my second year. But then uh, Glenn Sugiyama from DHR called me about University of San Francisco. And so that's how I got involved with that. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. So you've only been there two years. San Francisco calling, but it's it's home. and San Francisco. Now they put the money into it, right? Where they they've redone it, and the building is really nice. But then it it wasn't. Um, was it just I, I want to go home? Was it you know that, that there's just a limit to Florida Atlantic and what you can do? What was the thought process in leaving so uh, so, so quickly? So when I turned down, I turned out another job, and I I called my AD and I said, hey, I got two more years on my contract. Uh, is there any way I can bump this up to four? I'd like to try to, you know, have some stability. Players are going to know I got four years on my contract. They know I'm going to be here a while. And the AD at the time said, no, nobody's getting any kind of extension. He's like, I'm on a one, one year deal every year. I got to do my job at a high level to keep my job. And I said, well, if you do that, it's going to be really tough. I'm going to have to keep looking. I'm going to have to, you know, be open to other jobs. And that's when, San Francisco called and I said to them, uh, I'm not interested. I just turned down a job. My wife's been going through it. She doesn't want to leave. We have family down in Florida. Why don't you talk to such and such? And such? I'm, I'm giving names to people I think would be a good fit at San Francisco that have some California ties. And about a, you know two or three days later, the search firm calls me again and says, hey, we really want to talk to you. We really want to get involved. And I'm like, I'm good. My wife is like, she's got steam coming out of her ears. Like, no, we don't want to go to California. We don't want to go back. And then about the third time he said, hey, the, the search firm said, hey, we can get you in the top three. You'll have a legitimate job, a chance at the job and just come out and check it out. And so I did. But here's the thing. It was really smart by them. It was really dumb by me. I interview and I interview at a hotel in Burlingame. I don't even go on campus. I don't see the facility. I don't see the gym. I don't see the campus. None of it. It's just an interview, straight interview with their with their search committee. I uh, do a good job. I know Jim Bravelli and, and Jim Bravelli gave me comfort. He had recruited me when I was in, at, in California playing high school basketball. So I had comfort with him, but I didn't know the job, right? I didn't know the job, but and I always say this when I finished the interview and I thought it went well, we, you fly, you're flying out of San Francisco. And for whatever reason, this time we didn't fly over the bay, right? We flew over the city. And I remember the, the, the plane like turning and I'm looking down and I see Olympic Club and I see the Golden Gate Bridge and I see downtown. And I'm like, this is really beautiful. This is really cool. Like if they offer me the job, I'll take it, you know, and I'm just saying this to myself, fly back. Um, there was a lot of issues with the administration at that time when I took the job. The AD wasn't a favorite because, you know, they, they went from Jesse Evans to Eddie Sutton to not having a coach. And the way it was handled, a lot of the alums didn't like it. So the AD actually comes out and 
one of my former agents calls me, Aaron Goodman calls me like, Hey, like, and he's like, kind of recruit me. And I'm like, is he recruiting me or does he want someone else to get it? You know, like I'm really confused with all this stuff. And I talked to the AD and, and sure enough, I talked to the, the vice president of the kind of the CEO of the school and they want to offer me the job and we start going through it. And I didn't handle it. Great. Again, not prepared, being an assistant coach for three years, being a head coach for two years, there are questions I didn't ask. There's things I didn't really follow up, but it's, it's your first like big job for me. I thought it was a big job. West coast conference, Gonzaga, St. Mary's it's home. Like if they offered to me, I'm going to take it, but I don't ask the right questions. The dorm situation wasn't great. It's funny when I was walking into the offices and I don't know if you've been there, but like the old offices, they were painting the offices. So all the furniture in all the offices were pushed in the middle of the room. So I couldn't even work in my office when I walked on campus. Um, one of the offices was a former toilet. Like one of my assistants had to work in a place where you still hold the stumps to the urinal and, you know, the toilet. Like one of my coaches had to work in there. So, and then I'm just, I'm walking to the press conference and my, my oldest son now looks at me and he says, dad, you really think this is a better job than FAU? And I'm like, I think so. <laughs> you know, like, I don't really know if this is a good job. And Jeff Lender, who came with me, because I was going to hire an FAU, said, whatever you do, Rex, don't take it. I know Tommy Lloyd. I know the people at Gonzaga. They're all telling me, don't do it. And again, you talk about strength and weakness. I'm like, I'll figure out a way. Like, I'll figure out a way. Let's lock in. Let's recruit the right guys. Let's, we'll get after it. And so... I ended up accepting the job. I was there eight years. We had some good teams, had some competitive teams, won 20 games. You think about San Francisco and, the, and Todd, I think, has done a good job. Kyle Smith did a good job, but they had won 20 games in 30 plus years before I got there. So I was really proud of those things. A lot of things, again, that I learned in the process because, again, 34, 35 years old, a lot of things to learn. You know, you see a lot of these assistant coaches, like some of these guys that have paid their dues for 10, 15 years that really learn about what it takes to be a head coach. I think they have a better chance of success as opposed to a lot of these, you know, 20, and I'm not saying all of them, but 20, 30 that, that haven't been through the process. Well, I hadn't been through the process to not know what I didn't know. So, um, but it was a great experience. Great eight years. My family loved living there. We got to the NIT one year. We went to the postseason twice had some really good good players good good guys um and we're just you know just on the cusp of getting to a west coast conference finals and having a chance to get to the ncaa tournament how were you different as a coach at the end as opposed to the start you talk about learning stuff and like what did how did you evolve as a coach so as a young coach and especially you know when you when you're your mentors or the people you look up to you know, Coach Williams is a very hard-driven coach. Do what I ask you to do, right? Do what I ask you to do. Well, at Kansas, you got players. They're going to do what you ask them to do. Well, maybe not necessarily going to be the case at USF. You know, they're not going to necessarily do. And so Coach Williams would dig his heels in when we were messing up, right? And we could take it. Like our player, you know, the players like Adonis Jordan, they could take it. Well, these other guys, because it's not quite the same level play. And I had good players, don't get me wrong. So I was a hard driving coach. We would run and we would run gut checks and, and guys would just drop off. And then you get a reputation as being like too hard, too driven, too much, you know? And so those things at the beginning of my career carried over into years, you know, six, seven, and eight, right? So he's going to push you really, really hard. He's going to tell you the truth. And our guys, you know, we, we had a, a little bit of a transfer problem. We had 20 some odd guys leave. And, and every year we got good, we would lose a really good player and then we'd take a step back. And so you have to always be able to tell the truth to a player. You've got to tell him way he can handle it. Well, I was a player. Coach Williams would tell me, you know, I've never had a player more selfish in my 27 years of coaching. If I said that to one of my kids, that would be a really hard thing that they, especially in today's day with social media, they might not be able to handle that. Okay, so I, here's this. This is this is a great part of the discussion. Okay, so Eddie Sutton was the same way, right? Like 
he told my boy, uh, <laughs> he told my boy Mike, I won't leave his name out. Everybody who played, who played yeah. with us, it, Mike transferred, and but his last, and he was a four point student, but he couldn't remember secondary break. He's like, Mike, you're the dumbest smart kid we've ever had, right? And I mean, like he would just tell, he would, he would, he would just say it like it is, like, oh, you don't, don't you ever shoot, save that shot when you're playing in Cyprus next year, right? Like he would just <laughs> kill you. Yeah. So is it these, the players today? Is it kids today? Was it specifically the ones that you had felt like you had to recruit at that level? Cause I do think that there are some, you know, like th- there are places in which though some of the tone and some of the wording is different, the feelings are still the same. Why do you think, that you don't have the same type of coaching we had that we, that we, I, I mean, like, I don't know if I, I think I enjoyed it. I like, like, I just, I don't know. I don't know what it, I re, like. I played for John McLeod and he never called anybody out. It was, it was because you came from an NBA thing. Where like, you know, you keep calling, you call you in the office. You'd have to set up an appointment. You go to the yeah. office, you'd sit down. He was incredibly nice. He'd offer you something to drink. Somebody eat, you throw on the film, and then he get on to you. Like with Coach Sutton, like he ain't waiting for any film. Like you, you, you guys are embarrassing, embarrassing. You go run the steps. I know how many they're like. I enjoyed, you know, the the being called out. I enjoyed really being pushed. But I also like you came from a dad who's a military guy. I came from a dad who's a basketball guy. Like that's how we were raised. I get again. Is it this era of player? Is it a societal thing? Is it specific to the players that you had to recruit uh, at, at, at San, San Francisco? That's a great question. So I, I had some guys, I could, I could say pretty much anything to them, like Tim Dirksen, Angelo Calario, two guys that are still playing professional basketball to this day. Like I could be really hard on I made Angelo Calario, which makes no sense. He wouldn't shoot the basketball in a game we're blowing out a non-division one. And we had a rule, like if you miss a layup in, in, a, in a certain drill, you had to go up in the stands and touch the Bill Russell sign. Well, he wasn't shooting it, so I said, go run up during the game. And he did it. You know, and and so I could I could get on him in the game. You had, in the game, I had him run up like, and it's funny, it's it's crazy because I told him you didn't do it hard enough, do it again. <laughs> so it's funny. The kid's a great kid. He's like literally giving my kids high fives as he's going down the steps. But I could get on him like that, and he was fine with it. And other kids, if I got on like that, they 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 couldn't handle it. I think some of it is society. I think that you have a major transfer issue, not just in college, in high school and in AAU. Like if it's not working and I'll, I'll tell this story, my wife won't like it. Like, so I'm sitting there and I'm watching, I'm at another game and my wife texts me. She's like, Gunner, it's my son. Gunner is acting like a crazy person. He's really competitive. Right. And the coach not saying anything to him. So I, and I text her back and said, Hey, let the coach handle it. We'll deal with it later. Five minutes later, and I love my wife. She's mama bear, right? She texts me like, the coach just benched Gunner. We got to get him off this team. <laughs> so I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not the way it works. And my wife, she's the best wife in the world, but that's that's what we're dealing with now as a society. Parents, if it's not working the way they want it to work, like, let's just find the other thing. So when that happens, there's not there's not the ability to handle accountability. Why? It's This, it's, this is great. Um, I was just talking to, was I, just, I was just talking to a, a, a football coach and he, we were talking about like on social media, when coaches push back on the transfer portal, you know, they're seen as these hypocrites because they, they take different jobs. The reality of it is that you're comparing a coach leaving and a player leaving is, is it's night and day, right? Like anybody with any sort of, brains understands this but i but to the to the brain dead that are on social media it's hypocritical the biggest issue is how do you coach kids right how do you how do you coach them right okay so we 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 have to be careful about our language if you bench them they're gonna leave yeah they're just they're gonna leave but you can't like keep throwing them out there how do you how do you like I, I don't really understand how it would work. And and look, leaving has always been the threat that a player has. 
right? It always has been. And it was one of the things that Coach Sutton used to say he loved about recruiting transfers is nobody transfers twice. Now people transfer two and three times. Now you you go ahead and leave. Nobody transfers twice. You go back to some NAIA school and go try that crap in California, right? That's how he used to. But now it's like, look, if I sit a guy, he's going to leave. Like, And there's no repercussions for leaving if you can transfer and play right away. Um, so, and here's the part that I, I really struggle with. Most of us, not all of us, most of us who played or even you live life, the things that you look back on with the, you take the most pride in were the things that you had to overcome, right? That it wasn't, you know, it's like for you, like when you, you, you get somewhere and you get to Northwest, you get to Kansas and I don't know, like you're from Northwestern. I don't know if this guy, and by the time you leave Kansas, like, oh, he's a dude. Like you earned everything you got at Kansas. You earned everything you got at Northwestern. But we, we have, we have, it's not the kids, the parents. I don't understand what the pushback is on earning things and going through some tough times in order to see the really good times. Well, I think, I think it's, it's a, it's a major problem to be honest with you. And, and what, what I'll say is this is, with NIL, with social media, with with the instant transfer rule now, like if you watch a lot of college basketball, you call a lot of games. I watch I, every day. I sit here and I watch college games. Sometimes I'll turn it off after about five minutes. Like I can't watch this. Like there, there's no account of guys are shooting bad shots. Guys are turning the ball over. Guys are just hugging up against their man. Like this is bad basketball. This guy, this coach could be in some trouble here if he doesn't get it right. So it's a, it's an unbelievable challenge. I'll say this. When I watched Izzo, I went to Michigan State. Izzo holds him accountable. And he recruits a certain type of kid. And he can do that at Michigan State. But he's not getting all the guys that he wants in right. terms of – he's not like Coach K where you recruit 10 guys. you know. So he's really smart about, okay, I'm going to recruit the kid. I'm going to get to know the parents. I'm going to really figure out how this kid ticks. And can he handle the way that I coach? Uh, I watched Greg Campy. Same thing. He's, he's very – not abrupt, but very honest. Tells it like it is. Right. He has some good years, has some bad years. Right. But you know what you're going to get with those teams. I think as a coach now, the challenge is, is you got to be really good with your delivery about how you're going to present things and how you're going to help get guys get better, how you're going to spend time with them. And you have to spend time with them and they still may leave you. Right. But your ultimate end goal, because here's the thing. Now, every college coach now is an NBA coach with not NBA players. And so in, in actuality, NBA teams have more power and they're still giving in to the player than college teams do. Because if you're on a contract with an NBA team, it's much harder for you to get out in college. Now, it's the wild, wild west. It's nuts. Like a kid could leave at the drop of a hat. So we're, we're up against some really, really difficult things now. But you got to be a great, great teacher. And I think that's what really helped me. And it's probably why I still want to do it. You got to be a great. I work for Stan Van Gundy. He's one of the best teachers. One people say he's too hard. Our players were like, ah, shoot arounds might be too hard. That was the, the thing that they were saying. He's an unbelievable teacher. And it's more about watching the film, understanding it, getting buy-in from the player to have success. Now, they're not, they may not always like him, but they know exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you better. And if you don't want to get better, this isn't the right place for you. We got to find another place. So, but you got to be really, really smart in the recruiting process about who you're recruiting, who he's listening to. Cause now it's not like back in the day, you probably had your father, maybe a brother. Like I had my father and that was it. Uh, maybe talk to my AAU coach, who was a pretty smart guy. But now these kids got 15 people that they're listening to. And on top of that, they're looking to try to get their likes up on their Instagram and their Twitter. So it's, it's full on crazy. What's that like to get fired? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you how I got fired in San Francisco. So I always tell this story. So we're driving, me and my wife are driving down the street, getting ready to get some burritos uh, on Geary Street. And Scott Sidwell calls me. And we, we went 15 and 15 that year. Like we, we played San Jose State in an exhibition or scrimmage. We got throttled by 30. And I looked at her after that first scrimmage. I'm like, we might not win three games this year. Like we're, we're bad. Like Tim Dirksen was a tough kid, was a senior playing. He was a 6'3 power forward for us. 
played his butt off. We had Devin Watson as a sophomore, good player. He was a sophomore at the time. And then it was all a bunch of freshmen and guys that didn't play at all. We lost everybody from the year before, except those two guys. I was like, we might not win two games. We went 15 and 15 that year. And I look at my wife and I said, Scott just called me. I think I'm going to get an extension. Like I coached my butt off this year. We, we had a really good year considering. And she just looked at me she's like, no, you're getting fired. I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's time. You've been here eight years. We've had some ups. We've had some downs. I've been good years, had some tough years. It's like, she's like, I just don't, I don't feel good about this. So I walk into his office. Uh, it's eight o'clock in the morning. Cause I called him. I said, Hey, I'm on a flight at, at 10 30. I'm going to go see my daughter play in, in Vegas. She was playing at Bakersfield and he's like, fine, this won't take but a second. He just, he just looked at me and said, Hey, I'm going to make a change. And I said, Oh, okay. And I was like, uh, everything go with the buyout. <laughs> That's all I said. Everything go with the buyout. And he's like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. I was like, no, 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 no. Is everything good with the buyout? And he's like, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Rex. Don't worry about it. And I walked out of the office I texted my staff and said, hey, please come in the office. And they came in the office. I said, please text all the players. Let's get them down in the locker room. I sent a tweet. I said, hey, it's been a great eight years. Really appreciate, you know, the players, the coaches, the opportunity. Went down, talked to the players. One of my assistants, who I think I don't totally trust, I thought he knew what was going on, acted surprised. And, and I just said, hey, I'm really sorry, guys. This is not going to work out. Let me know what I can do to help you. Um, I'm on a flight to Vegas. Get on a flight to Vegas. You know, you know how it is. You get fired. You get cut. You, you get all these text messages. And land, once I landed in Vegas, I got a whole bunch of texts. Stan Van Gundy, who's an unbelievable person, texts me and says, hey, come out to Detroit. Come watch us play. Hang out. Get out of San Francisco. And that's what I did. I went to Detroit for about three or four days. Stayed at his house. Went to Carolina for two days to see Coach Williams. Flew back to San Francisco. We, we started packing up and I went back to our home in Boca Raton. So what, what did coach Williams say? He said, it's funny. It's, he was great. He's, you know, he, he said, you know, what you're going to do, how can I help? And I said, ah, you know, coach, I'd still like to coach again. He's like, it's, he's like, he's like, it's, it's, it's funny Rex, because when I was coming up, coach Smith could make a call. And he can open up a door for you. He's like, and when I first started, I could kind of do that as well. He's like, it's changed so much since then. Now they got these search firms, like, I'll help you all I can. He's like, I just don't know how much I can. And so I said, hey, coach, I don't expect a miracle, you know, but I appreciate you. And I wanted to come down and watch you by his practice. And, and that was really mu pretty much the conversation. But I got fortunate. I got the, I got the G League job, Stan, offered me a job to coach in the G League, which I loved. Uh, and it made me a better coach, a better teacher. You can't yell and scream at, at pro players like you, you can't do it, but you can still get your point across if your teaching is good, if your video is good, if you know how to break things down. So learned a lot from that experience and then got called up with the Pistons. As a guy who hasn't lost his never didn't lose your confidence, really, maybe until you went to Spain as a player, as a coach, it's much kind of the same thing. It's like. It's like you're driving in the car and you're like, dude, 15 and 15 with that squad. Are you kidding me? I should get the, you know, coach of the freaking year, right? Because now the, the, the other side to it is like, Hey, it's eight years. Those are your guys. That's who you recruited. Right. So that's the, if you want to take the negative to it, but inside in your, in your gut, when you get fired, it's a whirlwind. You're doing all these things. Do you question yourself? Well, you have to. I mean, you, you have to look at yourself and figure out what you could have done better. And I think the things that I looked at were number one is as a leader of a program, right? As the as the guy that everyone's looking to, you have to be in control a lot more of yourself first and then everything else. If you watch me on the sidelines, I'd get on refs, I'd get on my players. Like you have to be, you're the head of the chicken, right? kind of like a point guard. You're a great point guard. You got to be under control. If you're wild and crazy at times, your team's probably going to be wild and crazy. And our teams were, our teams were highly competitive, like tough, physical, like got after it. But to get the most out of your team, you got to also have a certain amount of control and how you deliver your messages, how you get your point across to your teams, how you build a culture in terms of, yeah, I mean, 
people always talk about culture. I said, the best thing for culture is get a great player. That's about all the right things. You're going to, your culture is going to be really good. But as the head coach, you also have to set the tone in terms of who you're bringing into your program and how you're going to coach them. So those are things I really looked at when I talked about myself, how we would do things uh, from a culture standpoint in terms of building guys up and not just breaking guys down. This isn't the 70s, 80s, and even the early 90s where you can get on guys like that. You've got to be really good in your teaching. You've got to be really good in your delivery. and You've got to be able to break guys down, but build guys up. Uh, even at a higher level. I think um, working for Stan, I, I learned a lot about the defensive side of the ball. I think that made me a lot better. Uh, we weren't very good in our, our defensive teams, weren't very good. Our teams weren't very good defensively. I got better in those areas. But I think the biggest thing was, and, and I even asked assistants to say, hey, you're not working for me now. You know, wh- what do I need? Wh- what could I have done better? Wh- what did you struggle with? Because we had turnover with coaches too, to quite honestly. We had guys, and San Francisco was a hard place to be an assistant coach because Real estate's really expensive. It's not like you're going to buy a house. You're not making a lot of money, all those things. But, you know, I, I talked to coaches that I really respect and trusted about that as well, because you have to look at yourself and figure out how you're going to be able to do it better if you get another. What they, and what they say? Well, they said some of the same things I just told you, you know, like, like, Rex, you know, at times your delivery of things, guys that you recruited couldn't take it. Um, your expectations. There's nothing wrong with having those expectations, but you got to be able to get us to believe that we can do it as opposed to like when I grew up as a player, someone said, hey, you can't shoot three. They said, oh, yes, I can. Let me show you. Well, you know, some kids nowadays and even some coaches say, hey, how in the hell did we come up with this in this kind of report? This this isn't going to work. This is kind of stuff to get you fired. Right. Well, you can say that to me, but you can't say that to a coach because then he's thinking about just getting fired. As opposed to, hey, this is where we got to get better. You know, we got to know pick and roll coverage is coming out of a time on how it could change. And that's going to give us a chance to be successful. I said, just those two different deliveries, like you're not going to kill somebody or crush somebody as a coach or a player if you deliver it that way. And that's the way that I grew up. I grew up with the way, well, hey, you're the most selfish player I've had in 27 years of coaching. Yeah. Hey, you don't play defense. You're never going to play here. That's what I grew up on, but that's listen, not. Listen, I had, I had, I had a weekend. I have like a U program. So I had a weekend and my son is, uh, doesn't, I, I have an older team. There's, they were like 13 is going to be 14 ever. My son wasn't on the team. He was at summer camp. And so I'm coaching. Part of it was I was ticked because like, what am I doing? Coaching this team? Like, He's <laughs> not my kid, and I and I like and I've had some of these kids three four years, but we sprinkle in a couple of of other really talented kids, and I just I didn't. There was one kid in particular who was really selfish, and the dad was a problem. But I I actually called the kids in, and I and there was three of them that were really talented. Like you guys are the most selfish motherfuckers to ever wear those jerseys yeah. and you're 13 years old and like you're 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 looking at me but you're not actually listening to me you're not passing like you should watch this this is embarrassing to watch like you're just so selfish just pass the ball and you'd actually beat a team that you're better than but trying to do it by yourself you're losing to a team that they're playing together and you're not right yeah. and so you know like the next week, I'm, I text one of the dads like, hey, is such and such coming? He's like, you know, can't believe you called my son a selfish motherfucker. Yes. And I was like, well, he was. It's like, it's not doesn't mean that's who he is. That's who he's playing like. And it's like, really? It's like, yeah. yeah, we just, it's not how we wanted. I was like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like, somebody's going to cut, somebody's going to say that to you at some point in your life. And, you know. Um, so I, I get it. I, I mean, I think there's a, you have to, you have to get the right kids, but you have to also evolve and adjust the times and adjust language wise or whatever. Um, oh, actually, I think I always think it's funny because like, if you sit in the locker room and guys talk to one another, this is the language of the masses, right? This is how we talk to one another in basketball. And yet when a coach uses the same language, like, no, 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 that's old school coach. Like, that's nah, really really not well if okay, you listen so, you just if you i listen to music sometimes my son will put on some music and i'm like oh it's unbelievable are you kidding me yeah listen listen this is this is a great point okay because you and i are not we're not some like you know we're not listening to waltz music whatever like i grew up listening to rap and hip-hop yeah i think it's worse now and i'll tell you why 
because no one, because in order to be successful, you don't need a radio version. Right. Right. Literally every song you download for your kid is, has the E next to it. Now you can search and search and search for the clean version, but it's, it's a lot. I, I think it's, I think it's worse and I'm not, and I don't, I, I think it's worse. I think the language in, in rap and hip hop is way worse. And it's because everything is downloaded digitally. So you don't need radio airplays in order to get attention. Well, I, I was driving home. My son had a game yesterday and I'm driving home and, and, I, and I had one song, uh, Bounce to the Ounce. Good song. Like it's got a good, like it's good song. Right. Um, and then I, you know, the next song comes on and I'm like, oh, geez, explicit. And then I go to the next song. Oh, geez, explicit. Like I was like, I was like, Ace, every one of these songs is explicit. Like you're lucky. I mean, you're, you're, you're better not because I can't find, it's tough for me to find the clean version nowadays because yeah, if no. you don't put it out explicit, the kids won't listen to it. Correct. So yeah. When these kids say, Oh, you know, you talk to me too harsh. Like, yeah. I, I, love, I love that. Wait, what? Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, but I'll I, say, I, did my son, I did my son do a barbershop and yeah. And he was like in the barbershop and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 turn on the music. You got a little kid in here. He's, he's 12. My son's like, yeah, I, I have this song on my phone. We're up. We're good. I'm like, what am I going to do? What, what am I going to do? Um, Sam, how did, how did you live in San Francisco? Like you made a good amount of money as head coach, but it's San Francisco. No. Did you, did you buy? Like, what did you, did they give you an interest-free loan? Like, how did it work? Yeah. So we lost money. My, my eight years in San Francisco, we didn't make money. I'll just put it that way. Like we, we lived there because like we love San Francisco. We love being in California. I, my, my mother was going through things medically. So I wanted to be closer. She lived in Vegas. Uh, we had a 60-40 shared appreciation loan at San Francisco. And that's how they made it work. So we owned 60%. They owned 40. And then the biggest stress of that was when we got let go. I had to sell the house in 60 days, which ended up not being a problem. We actually made some money off the house and we lived 10 minutes from campus. I walked to work every day. Um, so yeah, it, 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 that worked out fine, but that's how you make it work. In the biggest thing for me was my assistants. Like if you ever talk to Sundance Wicks, let him tell you the story about where he was living. You know, he's now at Wyoming with Jeff Lender. Talk to Will Martin, who's a head coach at uh, Missouri Western and where he was living. I think they were roommates at the time. So to me, I had a lot of assistants live in my house. Uh, Michael Lee lived in my house for a while. Brent Cruz lived in my house for a while. Uh, Wendell Rayford uh, lived in my house for a while. So you had to figure out how to make it work. At first, when I got there, we had apartments, like one apartment. Jeff Linder lived in one, which you know, was a whole different, another story because, you know, he walks, his, his wife's walking on campus one day and there's a dead body, you know, on the campus and she's walking her two kids. But, you know, we, we, we experienced a lot of interesting things when I was at San Francisco, but housing was always a big issue. I, I, one thing I'll say about San Francisco, I'm sure they've done a better job in that area. I know Scott, even though he fired me, and I needed to probably needed to be fired. And I think my wife is right. I needed to figure out some things to become a better coach. But the schedule has gotten a lot better. I mean, Todd's done a good job. I, I kind of watch from afar, but I think they've left home maybe twice. Those things make a difference, you know. And 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 so the offices. My last year, offices got redone, which was really nice. No, they they redone. They they're, they're redoing everything there, which is yeah. like you know, thirty years, forty years. Uh, uh, after they, they should have. No, and I mean, they're, they're even, I've talked and they're even honest about it. I mean, I played, it's funny, I played in the Golden State Tournament, some tournament or whatever. We played San Francisco. I was in sixth grade. We won it. And I was like, that place is a dungeon. That was my only, <laughs> I had been there like once. I was like, that place, it's the worst I've ever, like, it was like the land that time forgot. Like, yeah, you could actually see, you could actually feel like Bill Russell and Casey Jones played here because it feels like Bill Russell and Casey Jones just played here, right? That's how dingy it was. And the, the the playing home games is people always said this about Kent State and the Mac, right? Why was Kent State forever the best program in the Mac? It's like because they bought more games than everybody else. You know, that was it was really it. That's why they won twenty games. You buy two more wins than everybody else, and you're going to win 20 games more, more, more often. Um, it is about, it is about investment. Um, okay. So you go coaching the G league. How different is it? Uh, you mentioned how you uh, get on to players, but in terms of schematic, like I went to a, a Miles Simons, my best friend in basketball. So we played together since fifth grade 
and I watch him coach. One, he's awesome. But two, like 24 second shot clock, you're basically, you got, they got to get into it. And then they, you just kind of got to let them play and give them a framework. And then every once in a while, you know, when they're not playing well, you call a set or you call an ISO, you know, and then you do your magic really after timeouts or on, on dead balls. What was that like for you to go from your coaching in San Francisco? You have a system, you have eight guys, you recruit them to now you got the turnstile thing in the G League where guys are getting called up, getting cut, and it's harder to coach because you have to just let them play with the 24 second shot clock. Yeah. So you got to, you have to control what you can control. And there's certain things you can't control. You can control in terms of transition defense and that being an emphasis of we're, we're going to eliminate the rim. We're going to protect the paint and we're going to close out. And you got to, you are what you emphasize. So that was a big thing that we really worked on and tried to emphasize working on closeouts. I, I think you're right about letting them play, but you got to give them a framework. And you talked about that, a framework of, Hey, this is how we're going to play the game. These are the actions that we're looking for. This is the spacing that we want. Here are the cutting actions. Here are the screening actions that we want. I think ATOs are really, really important in that league because you're always looking to get momentum. So after, if you're in a timeout, you're really trying to diagram something. You're going to get a quality look to, again, give guys confidence, give guy, get guys quality looks. When If you get Jordan Crawford, who was a great player at Xavier, if you get him open look, it's going in. Like it's, You can do that in San Francisco. It might be an air ball. Like you don't know what's going to happen with that. Right. So, that's, the that's the difference in professional basketball and college basketball. You give a guy, guys open, it's going to make. Yeah, no question. Uh, so, you know, those are things you got to be really good. You got to be good in your ATOs. You got to be good in your pick and roll coverage calls. Your 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 timing in terms of how much time you have to teach and coach. You, you got to be really good because you're going to get about forty five minutes to an hour in terms of practice because you're playing so many games, right? And then your film work has to be really really good, both individually. We had each coach had about four players, which I think I would I would work in college. I, to a, to a certain extent, but also your delivery in terms of film that you use to show your team. So I think that's the thing. The biggest thing that I learned is just the use of time. You got to really, really be good with your use of time of what you're showing them, what you're going to teach, how you're going to gain momentum, right? And things that you can control in terms of what you can take away as a defensive coach. So that's why, you know, I watch, I watch a lot of NBA basketball because you can still learn so many things and just how guys play the game, the things that they emphasize, the things that they're going to take away. And it, it, you know, it also helps when you have good players. I mean, that, that there's no question. Your success is always going to be determined by the level of talent and buying that you have from your guys. Okay. So now what's next for you? Like you've done seven years as a head, as an NBA player. You've played at the very highest level of college basketball. You've been a head coach for 10 years, decade of, of head coaching success in college basketball. You're connected with the Carolina family. You've done the NBA uh, assistant thing as well. So you have like, you checked, check, check the, check the box boxes of all this different stuff, but you have, you know, 30 more years to do what you want to do. What do you want to do? Uh, you know, right now I'm calling games for Oakland University. So I go both on the men's and women's side. I've got a few games I'm going to call on radio, which, which I'm looking forward to, to do that. I'm, I'm trying to work on some of the media things on that side, but also keep my eye out as you get to March and you hate to see guys lose jobs. And, you know, because I've been there and I know what that's like. But if the right opportunity comes up, I, I'd like to do that again. I think I have things that I want to show that I can still do uh, and do better than I did the first time as a, I would like to think a guy at 51 is going to be a heck of a lot better coach and have learned an awful lot uh, than he when he was 34, 35. So that's a possibility. We really love living in Michigan. Uh, I get to see all of my son's games, which is the first time I've seen. I have a senior in high school right now. I think I've seen a total of eight of his high school games and two of them have been in the last you know, two weeks. So that's been fun for me. My middle schooler, I've got to see all of his games. I, I really didn't get to see him play. So that's fun. I'm blessed and fortunate. We've done well financially, but I do think the game still calls me and I would be interested if the right opportunity came up. And if not, I do like, you know, watching good commentators, I, guys that I can listen to. I, I listened to your podcast with Dockage, which was hilarious. You guys were very funny and very direct in some of your beliefs, which I thought was really funny, but I, I enjoy calling games as well. So that might be something if I can get my foot in some different doors. How good is your son? Your, your oldest one is, is Ace and your younger one is Gunner? 
Gunner's the senior. Ace is the uh, seventh grader. Yeah. Okay. So how good's Gunner? Gunner's good. He's a good player. He had he had seventeen and eight the other night. You know, points and assists. They've got a nice team. They're two and zero right now. This is his fourth high school, though. That's the tough thing for him is recruitment. He's got some schools that are looking at him, which is nice. He wants to play at some level. Um, he's a good player. He, he's 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 fun to watch. And, and Ace is really because of his older brother. I think that's really helped him. You know, really fall in love with the game. So it's been fun to watch both of them play. So is he a Division One player? He's going to a Division One player. I think he's definitely. I think he's, he can definitely play Division One basketball and be a good player. I compare him to guys that I had. You know, he reminds me of Frankie Ferrari, who transferred from me. I recruited him as a freshman, ended up being all West Coast Conference player. Hey, Frankie, yeah, yeah. Uh, Frankie thought he should play a lot as a freshman, sophomore. He wasn't quite ready, but when he was a junior, senior, he was a heck of a player. Um, Cody Doolin's a guy that left me as well. <laughs> he reminds me a little bit of Cody. Um, Cody left his senior year. So, you know, those are the type of guys that, that I think he reminds me of. He just, he's 5'11", he's 160-pound soaking wet. But I, I sent a picture to him the other night because Steph, when he broke the record, Steph would play in the Pro-Am. And I got a picture of him. He snuck in the picture with Steph Curry. I said, hey, if you want to congratulate Steph, tell him you're gunning for him because you're, you're a 5'11", 160-pound guy. So we'll see what happens. He's fun to watch, though. And then the younger one? And then what about Ace? We'll see seventh grade, you know, like right now he's different than yeah. Send him out. I got a, squ- a seventh grade squad. Send him out. <laughs> like me. Yeah, he's about five, five, nine, five, ten, bigger than everyone Ooh. else. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see how much he grows. He's different than Gunner, but Gunner's been a good influence. He had 17 in about 13 minutes yesterday. I was really shocked when I looked at the numbers. I I, I can't yell at him. You know, during the game, I, I got to take notes and I send them notes afterwards. And I was like, hey, you got 17 points in about 13 minutes. So uh, we'll see. But I think you, you love the game. You know what I mean? I got to, if these guys love the game, they'll, they'll find a way to make it work. And Gunner definitely does. I think Ace is still early to tell, but but he, he really does enjoy it. Do you personally work with him or do, or do you stay stay away from it because it's it's too hard? Gunner, I worked a lot with him. And Addie, who played Division One basketball, worked a lot with her. Drew as well, who walked on at Stetson, was a pretty good player. So, yeah, I do. I mean, it's high school season right now, so probably not as much. But it's funny, all the stuff that I that we work on, a lot of it I stole from John Beeline. We, we stole that when I was in Detroit. All his, all his um, fundamental ball handling, passing, uh, and in shooting and stuff, I mean, we stole a lot of that stuff from him. So, and, and and you can tell when Gunner plays, he's at least been taught some some pretty good things. Uh, last thing, um, <laughs> most impressive guy you coached against, who no one would like. They they don't like. You know, obviously everybody brings down a big name. You've coached in the G League, coached in college basketball, various levels. Give me a guy who it just really impressed you. I coached against. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a, that's a really good question. And you're talking about the NBA level, whatever you want. Just somebody who pops out as you're like, man, you know what? That guy is. <laughs> he's really good. Yeah, man. He really sent me. That's a, that's a tough one. Because I'm one of those coaches that kind of like picks guys apart. Which yeah, is, no, I I get it. Like, and you're like, that guy's, that guy's, that guy's shitty. And a weakness. But, but sometimes there are guys that really impress you, you know? You know, there was a guy that that really never made it to the league and he played with Patty Mills and, and just off the top of my Mickey McConnell. Sure. People on the West Coast will know, right? And Mickey's an assistant at St. Mary's. Yeah. Like he he was, he a was guy. you know, he was going to he was going to New Mexico and he was right. gonna play for um why am I forgetting the head coach at Liberty. Um, you know what you're talking about. He was the head coach in New Mexico. He gets fired. Yeah. And they get they got him late at St. Mary's. Yeah. And like he's an unbelievable player. Yeah. Um, really good. Like it's funny when he started out, we would game plan and we thought we could take things away from him. And just like Della Vadova and Patty Mills, but we knew about those guys. You know what I mean? You knew about those guys. With Mickey, you could like we game planned, and he would figure out the game plan and just attack it. And I was and Randy gets some credit for that too. But I was like, goodness gracious, like okay, we're gonna play him in a drop. We're gonna force him this direction. You know, we're gonna make him finish at the rim, and he would always figure out ways to beat us. And, and so, 
Uh, I, you know, I don't like giving St. Mary's a lot of love, but uh, he was a guy that people nationwide, nationwide wouldn't necessarily think, but he was a really good college player. I'd have to think about the, the G League. There was a lot of good players in the G League. That It's funny, like guys that couldn't make it in the NBA – there was a guy that played for Sioux Falls that made it made it with Golden State for a little bit, and I'm forgetting what his name was. But he was a great leader, couldn't shoot it, but just figured out ways to win. And those are always guys I, I really enjoy watching and even coaching against. I'll, I'll look his name up and I'll text it to you. All right, so let's let's do this. Let's let's table this, and then sometime mid year, okay, we'll just you'll you'll send me a couple of. Uh, uh, NBA teams you want to talk about and yeah. some of the college stuff you want to talk about and we'll revisit it then. But in the meantime, you've been more than gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, this is awesome. And it's an amazing journey, right? Like you're 51, you got 30 more years left to figure out what you want to do and hope. And I appreciate it. No, I've been really blessed. I, I've never, I haven't worked a day in my life, but I like to say I work really hard. So I appreciate you letting me come on. I, I've always, we've known each other from afar. We've, we've crossed paths a few times. And so, uh, and I like your show. Like, I guess the docket show is funny. Like, docket is crazy. You know, yeah. and you're right there with him. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a nut. All yeah. right, brother. Thank, thanks for joining me and have a great, great day. All right, my man. Take care. Thank thanks, you. Right. Amazing stuff, right? Now you feel like you totally know a guy. You have a completely different sense. I mean, I, I did know that his mom was Japanese. I had no idea that most of his friends were from that background growing up in San Jose. Did you? Of course not. I remember the Northwestern thing. I didn't know why he transferred. I didn't know a lot of the stuff about playing for Roy Williams. And I definitely didn't know how he got into coaching. And I was intrigued to hear why he felt like it didn't work out in San Francisco and why he left Florida Atlantic for San Francisco. It's great stuff. Rex has told me he'll, he'll join me. We'll talk more basketball analysis, both NBA, which, of course, he's coached in, and college throughout the season. But I really appreciate all the time you spent. I appreciate the time you spend downloading as well. Remember, the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily, 3 to 6 Eastern, 12 3 Pacific. You can download that as a podcast as well. Um, if you liked it, you didn't like it, whatever, feel free. Reach out on social media. We're on uh, Instagram, at Gottlieb Show, on Twitter, at Gottlieb Show. And then, of course, this is the Doug Gottlieb Show fan page on Facebook. If you have a suggestion for a guest, we're open to them. Send it in a DM and I'll see if I can get them on. In the meantime, tell a friend about it, retweet it. Hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Rex Walters. I'm Doug Gottlieb and this is all. Ball.